Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. My guest in this episode is Mark Smith. Mark grew up in a broken home with an abusive dad in a community where the KKK was prominent. He reverted to sports and was due to report to spring training camp with the Atlanta Braves when he was attacked and lost his ability to pitch. His future would be pro wrestling and divorce. After another catastrophe, he stepped into a church. He became a minister, a husband, and a father of a multiracial family of eight children. He's now been married over 30 years, and he recently released his book, Wrestling with Demons. We talk about him growing up in an abusive environment, overcoming setbacks, his professional wrestling career, and his transition to the ministry and having a healthy home life. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And with that, let's welcome Mark. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, brother. It is so nice to be here. Question. Uh, has anyone ever told you you look like Bobby Flay? Bobby Flay? I'm the cook. I'm trying to, I don't know if I know what he looks like, actually. Bubba, he, y'all look alike. Oh my gosh. <laughs> really? Okay. I. He could be your older brother. Yes. I have to look him up real quick. Yeah. But no, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, really. Um. You know, just in the brief time we've known each other, uh, I feel a great relationship with you. And just so that listeners know, this is a no-holds-barred interview. I like saying no-holds-barred because that refers back to the wrestling days, you know. But uh, the thing is, is everything is very truthful here. And Artie's a great guy. And I hope you'll call your friends or whatever, bring them into the conversation today because hopefully some lives will find peace. And Artie, thank you so much for letting me be here. It's a pleasure. Um, To get started, why don't you give an overview of your bio, of your your history and kind of what we'll be talking about today? Sure. Uh, I was actually raised in Georgia. Uh, Georgia, of course, being part of the Deep South, I'm 57 years old, born in 66. So I saw and was around a lot of the racist activity, you know, the KKK stuff like that. In fact, in my hometown, the KKK had a, would have a float in the Christmas parade. No kidding. Wow. And I was raised with a father that had been abused when he was a kid. He had been beaten with chains. He, I don't think, ever really got anything processed. So we, I have brothers and sisters, we grew up in somewhat of a fear. If he had a bad day, it may be projected onto us. I've been hit by the fist and other things as well. I slept with a baseball bat as a kid. My parents got divorced after 30 years, but I was only an I was an early teenager, early teen at that time. And so I remember very well what it was like to be in a broken home. Especially uh and it was it's just a known fact that the parents I think they still loved each other in a way because they fought. You know, tend to be, if you're at peace with the situation, you just let it go. 
but it was hard for them to let it go. Mm. So I go to high school. I basically use alcohol as a crutch. Then I start picking up a baseball and throwing a baseball. My mama, uh, I really appreciate her because she offered me normality. I was able to play a little bit of Little League here and there and do things, and it was because of her. And finally, I got to the point that in one throw, I could put a baseball through a quarter-inch piece of plywood. And I thought, dog, I must throw pretty hard. Well, a couple coaches saw me, and I started getting calls, all from throwing uh, baseball through plywood. Hmm. All of a sudden, uh, there's a tryout. And I have a stepdad at that time, good man, but he had a drug problem. I remember going to his funeral. But he told me, he says, boy, the way you throw, you need to be up there. That, that, uh, we were watching a Braves game. They were saying next week it's going to be a tryout in Durham, North Carolina. Well, the movie Bull Durham hadn't even come out yet. But I actually pitched in that stadium that Kevin Costner played in. Evidently, I did pretty good, and I started getting calls from other teams about going to spring training. And between being attacked, physically attacked, and also a car accident, my pitching hand was ruined. It was permanently injured, and I lost my 94-mile-an-hour fastball. I was PO'd. I felt like the world had been taken away from me. I'm like, man, and I hear about this loving God and all this stuff. And I'm like, if this is love, man, forget it. So I marry somebody. We were married for three years. And uh, we go, I start wrestling professionally in these little shows. And I was trained on a, on a one-inch collegiate wrestling mat on a concrete floor. I wouldn't like these guys today in these soft little rings, blah, 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 blah. Man, I tell you what, I, 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 I used to call myself Rice Krispie because when they threw me down on that concrete floor, my back snapped, crackled, and popped. I mean, I'm telling you what, they tore me up. So after a few months, I start wrestling shows and I'm doing pretty well and uh, I get a phone call fella calls me and uh, tells me I'm pro uh, well I'll get into this story later anyway I end up wrestling my boss at one point's Dusty Rhodes hmm. American Dream Dusty Rhodes yeah. I wrestle for him in the NWA and also down in Florida and all these people that I grew up wrestling, I mean, grew up watching on TV, all of a sudden I was riding in cars with them, going from town to town and on airplanes with them. Finally, um, I was in such a hole that I looked up and I said, all right, big boy, you, you say you can change lives. I want to see what happens. I need it. 
and my wife walks out on me. I'm left with nothing. And we can get into details a little bit, a little bit, but what ends up happening is I've been married now for 30 years. I have three biological children, five adopted children of our adopted children, two Hispanic, one African American, one Native American Indian, and one Caucasian. Hmm. We look like a church group or we look like a a group of protesters when we walk into a restaurant. <laughs> you, you wouldn't believe the looks we get. <laughs> And so I write. I wrote this book, uh, Wrestling with Demons, because I know the demons that I had to deal with. And we can even talk about uh, what we perceive demons to be, if you want to. Yeah. Uh, but today I'm with you. I can't figure, I cannot... Uh, think of a better place I'd rather be. And for your listeners, uh, if you want to hear one strange life and one country boy, and you wonder how in the world a country boy from the other side of the tracks got through all this mess, uh, like I said, call your friends and come on and join the conversation. And again, I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you, Artie. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. Um you you suffered abuse as a child. You slept with a bat. You slept with a bat to protect yourself from your father, I presume? Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, um, I ought to kill my daddy. I'm for real. Um, how, how did the abuse start? I mean, he had abuse and... I, I used to see him beat the crap out of my brothers and sisters. Mm. And I would hear the fighting at night. I mean, I was probably seeing stuff at four and five years old. Were your sibling, siblings older than you? Yes. Okay. I'm the youngest. I'm the youngest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's probably 15 years or so between me and the oldest. Oh, okay. And okay. several in between. Yeah. Okay. But I witnessed it and, uh, you could definitely tell if there was a favorite who it was. And I was not it, but there were my other, some, some of my other siblings that they got it as bad. They probably got it worse than I did, but you know, he was angry at the world because of his abuse. And you know, you can't, I, I don't care. Nobody needs to be beaten with a chain. And when I found out that later, it, it explained a lot. Yeah. But to the listeners out there, the one thing I've learned is that with abuse, abuse does not have to be a cycle that continues, but it takes, it takes a lot of forgiveness to not carry on that cycle. And I'll tell you, I don't think, man, a, a person in their own with their own strength, their own personal strength has the power to forgive that kind of, those kind of actions. For me, I can tell you, even though I didn't realize it, God 
was in the picture, but I didn't realize it. Hmm. When's the last time you talked to your father? Uh, it was about, I said bye to him. I was, we were around Meridian, Mississippi. He was dying of cancer. And he fell asleep. I spoke spoke to him for just a minute. And he fell asleep and never woke up. My mother and stepmother was there. Taking care of him. The last time I actually talked to him. Last minute, there was a plot that he wanted to be buried in. Mm. Uh, he he was able to get the plot, but the one thing he didn't realize was that they could not get machinery into that plot. The last time I talked to my daddy, I said, I'm sorry because I felt so guilty about it, but me and one of my brothers was was burying him, putting dirt on top of his casket. Hmm. I told him I was sorry. What I didn't realize, but it took me about a year to understand it, was there was actually really nothing to be sorry about. It was my last act of love to make sure that he was taken care of. Abuse is a really interesting phenomenon. It, It... when you're a parent, you're you're caring for little humans that can't take care of themselves. You know, we say 18, but I guess you can start functioning in the world to some degree in your teens, in your you know, 14, 15 years old. But there's a, a trust that children innately have for their parents and abuse obviously is a huge violation of that trust and it has repercussions that usually last a lifetime for that child that will eventually become an adult. You're bringing up something interesting, Artie. I've never really thought about it until right now. But you know what? Through my adult years, I didn't trust him. I never thought about it till right now. You're right. It did break a trust. And and for that reason, I, I it was hard for me to believe anything he said. That's, that's, huh. Okay, Artie, you just t- taught me how much do I owe you. You just, you're a good therapist. Okay. Um. Did you have trust issues with other people in your life then after that word? I would imagine it's pretty easy to not trust people after you, when you can't trust the person who you're supposed to trust the most, it seems like it'd be pretty natural not to trust people easily. Well, in a way, yeah, it it can, I think it can work two ways. It can either work to where, like you're talking about, you don't trust anybody or it can make it to where you trust just about everybody if they're treating you differently. Because one of the things, one of the basic things that we learn in psychology, you know, we need to have a purpose. 
you know, all this stuff. But we also need to feel loved. Yeah. And so I can say that my, I've had two stepfathers. The, the last stepfather I had was probably more of a dad to me than anyone has ever been. He taught me some hard lessons, but we could talk about it. Yeah. And uh, for that, I appreciate it a lot. I've uh, had two father figures in my life, him, and of all things, one of his best, one of his good friends was Walt Disney. They used to go have a drink together, and John Wayne, like the yeah, the Walt Disney. Wow, he worked on the set. In fact, with Red Skelton, he would he was a set builder for Red Skelton, the famous comic. Hmm. Yeah, but that, but he and. A fellow that was I was a business partner with. I was a he was my business partner. And I'll just call him George. But George, I don't know if I could have found a better man in this world. And that kind of person, you hate to lose him. But he was traveling to a football game. He topped a hill, and there was a semi in the middle of the road, and it killed mm. him. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I told you that because there may be some listeners that may be, may have suffered a loss, and they don't think they, they may not feel like they can really come back from it. Or, and this is bad, but I'm going to be honest with you. So I think sometimes people can take a loss, do something they really want to do, and then use the loss as a scapegoat. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Like they can use it like a get out of jail free card. But that's no way to find peace. Finding peace is thanking God the fact that I knew George at all. Yeah. That's where I was blessed. I was blessed to have that great stepdad. See, even when people are abused, Artie, there's a way that you can still be appreciative. Appreciative for abuse? That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? When you sound it. Yeah. But see, just as we need people, and I, I don't say we need, but just as we have people, we do need people to show us how to be. We, in some small way, can appreciate those that have really, really treated us bad because we should learn from that how not to be because we have felt the consequences of that behavior or the, uh, the product of that behavior. So in some ways, I do appreciate my, my birth dad. I appreciate him. 
And it's not mean to say, I've learned from him how not to be. I, I, I believe he did the best he could. But I found to be the kind of dad I wanted to be, to be the kind of person I wanted to be, other people came in my life. They were sent in my life. So then it was my decision. Who do I, who do I want to be like? Yeah. So I, I hope I hope that kind of explains to you how I've, and I, I hope it helps listeners to understand how if you've been treated badly or abused, there is a way to forgiveness. And when, when you find that forgiveness, that's your road to peace. Because that evil, which I consider demons and evil, you know, almost as one, okay? That evil cannot attach itself to you if you've forgiven. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I, honestly, I, I feel like in a situation like that, it is so easy to hold on to anger and resentment. And there's a, here's a quote from that's attributed to Buddha that is uh, hanging, hanging on to anger is like hanging on to a hot coal and expecting the other person to get burned. Yeah. And I've always really liked that. And you said something about well, when you were talking, it kind of made me think of uh, a previous conversation I had with A.C. Bergen Fisher. And one of his insights, because he had abuse in his childhood by his father, who also had abuse by his father. And one of the reflections that he had during our conversation was, he said, and I'm, I'm going to mess up what he, he said, but I think I have the gist of it. He said, in his father's distorted mind, he probably felt like he was taking it easy on me relative to what his own father did. Yeah. Do you feel like that might have been the case with your father, too? Like you said, he got hit with a chain. I, I think that's a great perspective. You know what? Yeah. I really do. Uh, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I, I, again, I, I love what you bring in. To the conversation already. I really do. You're well schooled, man. I like it. Thank you. And because I like to have new ideas thrown at me and new perspectives. That's a very neat perspective. And I hope the listeners really do hear that. Because in the way you can gauge if you're being abusive and you don't even know it is look at the reactions of the people that you're dealing with. Yeah. Um, as a student of psychology, you have a degree in psychology. You surely are familiar with the experiment where they have the rhesus monkeys and they have, uh, it basically shows that like animals crave um, softness, like uh, something to cuddle, something to feel nurtured by. Uh, would you say that your mother provided that in your childhood? Because yeah. hopefully you had that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That and family friends that knew what was going on. Because yeah. when someone is abusive and they thrive on others seeing their control, 
which my father did. He thrived on that. So he didn't really understand what he was really showing people. Hmm. He thought he was showing them a great parent that could stare us down and make us fear for our life. And that is distorted. Yeah, it's distorted. But yeah, you definitely don't feel nurtured when you're in that situation with that person. But yes, because there's such a great distortion there as far as reality and how people perceive the, their act, the actions and everything, the behaviors. Um, people in a community, they can pick up on things. People aren't, most people are not stupid. If they are stupid, they're like me and hey, what can I say? I'm dumb, but, <laughs> but, uh, oh my goodness. After 30 something concussions, I ought to not be able to, I ought to be, talking to you with my thumb in my mouth. But uh, <laughs> uh, I do, I do, I do think the per, an abusive person that doesn't really understand they're being abusive, they're more outward with it. Uh, they're more outspoken about it. And it's not a shock to anybody in the community. They knew, they knew my daddy. They knew. Yeah. Uh, how did the the relationship between your parents? They stayed together. How did your? I would assume your mother rationalized your father's behavior in some way. How did that go about? Well, you know, she. I think her way of dealing with it was actually just letting okay let the let the past be the past mm. and because some people just are not equipped or my mother got married when she was 13 years old she she did not have the ability to go to different school to have a bunch of schooling and stuff. She did yeah. get her GED. She got a little bit of college behind her and everything in business, and she did well. But I think when it comes to most situations that are somewhat controversial, I think people tend to run more instead of talking about it. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, fast forwarding a little bit, you found solace in sports. That was a, a release for you. And then you have a lot of talent as a pitcher. And can you go into the details a little bit of the accident? I didn't quite understand what happened yeah. um, of the attack. What happened was two things. Number one, stepdad, that was, uh, abusing medications uh, came at me and I felt something snap. Just within a few days afterwards, I'm repossessing jewelry for a jewelry company. I'm going through a stop. A fella doesn't pay attention that he's got the stop sign. I'm in a little Chevy Chevette. He's in a Ford LTD. Guess who won the crash? <laughs> he did. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And my hand went through the dash and boom, it was all over. It was all over. And yeah, that 
was a very lost time for me because I've got all these clubs looking at me. I had the Cubs, the Pirates, the Padres, and the Braves. And to think, okay, I'm probably going to play, even if it's a if it's a ball, I'm going to probably play for somebody. And then it's ripped out from my idea. Yeah. And then people come and ask you as it's getting closer to spring, Mark, when you, when you're when are you going? And you just have to relive everything all over again. It's just rubbing salt in that wound. At the time you were still drinking at this time, right? Fair. Now in high school, I was really down in the stuff. I, and it was yeah. escape. It was an escape. Okay. Uh, this right here, this point, yeah, I was hiding it, not doing it as much, but hiding it. And, uh, I, it would, it would just continue on through the wrestling business and everything. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I ask is because, <sighs> When experiencing a loss like that, something that you, man, it was so close mm-hmm. and something so big and then taken from you, having been a drinker myself, I know what I would have been doing after that. Yeah. I know I would have been just drinking every sure. day. Um, it's hard to, what do you think pulled you out of that? Like, cause you had to have resentment. You had to have, I mean, anger over that. Uh, let's see. I really didn't get over the resentment of that until I made it into pro wrestling because I felt like I had to be somebody. I I was scared that I was going to be this person that no one knew and I would just fade off like dust in the wind and I wanted to I wanted to do something. I wanted to be known. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to do something. Yeah. And the wrestling business gave me a sense of belonging. Of course, it made me also a real jerk. I mean, I made myself a jerk, not wrestling. It gave me the opportunity to become a real jerk because I became full of myself. I lost my identity. Instead of being Mark Smith, the guy that wrestles, I became the wrestler Mark Smith. Those are two different things. Hmm. One, you're only identifying yourself as a wrestler. The other one, you're identifying yourself as a person first, and your job just happens to be wrestling. I was looking to be something so badly that I became a wrestler, and that's all I wanted to be. I was very, very pro-abortion, pro-everything. But anything that could wipe out an obstacle in my life so that I could wrestle, be in front of that crowd, I was all for it. Yeah. So, yeah, I I was searching. I was searching to be somebody, but I was willing to be anybody just as long as I didn't have to be myself. 
How'd that transition to wrestling start? Because that seems like uh, baseball to wrestling is not a logical Right. Transition. It's not. It's not. Uh, where I grew up, wrestling was very big. Mm. In our hometown, in my hometown, uh, one of the biggest bookers for the WWF, but that was before WWE times, yeah. WWF, he lived in our town. His son, who became a wrestler, his name is very close to mine. So we always sat together in class or behind mm. each other or in front of each other. Okay. He came by my dad's gas station one day and I was lifting U-Haul equipment. And he says, Mark, what are you doing? You, man, you've gotten big. And I said, really? He said, yeah, we're just talking. I said, Mark, what are you doing? His name was Mark as well. Okay. I said, Mark, what are you doing? He said, uh, I've been working for Don Owens up in uh, Northwest Wrestling. I said, really? He said, yeah, I'm making good money up there. He said, look, man, after you get off tonight, let me take you somewhere. I said, okay, sure. I didn't know, if we, you know, what we were going to do, go get a drink or something. I didn't know. But anyway, uh, he takes me out to the woods, and there's this 18 by 18 wrestling ring sitting in the woods. Hmm. He said, uh, come on, crawl in. He says, do you know how to do a body slam? And he showed me a few things, and we're working. He said, you're picking this stuff up, and your size, you're agile. He said, you need to do this, Mark. And I said, well, I don't know how. He said, I'll find out from some people who we need to, need to talk to. I also had a family member that knew uh, a car dealer. The car dealer used to be the manager of the Mastomedics tag team. That was really big. Okay. So my family member carries me into there. I introduce him and. He looks at me real squinty eyes. He goes, and then he opens his eyes real wide. He goes, so you want to be a wrestler? Yes, sir. I'd like to give it a crack. Yes. Okay. And he drops back in that office chair. Okay, Mark, I think we'll do something. So he calls a guy named Art Priff. Art, I got a young fella here. He looks in pretty good shape. Uh, Will you meet with him? Uh-huh, uh-huh. He said. Get your tennis shoes and some shorts and report to, uh, we called it the city park, the park building tomorrow. So I go, this guy that looked like he crawled out of a cave, walked in. How you doing, Mark? Let's this, this do this. So a one-inch mat, collegiate wrestling mat on a concrete floor. He says, here, let me give you a chop. He knocks me on my behind. Actually, I think when our shoulders hit the ground, my behind's still up in the air. Okay? He hit me, laid it in. What I didn't know was they were what they wanted to see how bad I wanted it, so they was going to beat the tar out of me. Mm. Well, they beat the tar out of me, so I started returning the favor over weeks, several weeks' time. And finally, they talk and they say, you're ready for a show. So they call one of the old mass medics, the one that's the youngest, and he's like 50-something. 
He's been retired for several years. Here, come tag with this young fella. Okay. His name was Jim Fordham. Well, we get in there and we wrestle and everything, and I get my behind beat like the best of them. I tell you what, I look so good getting my behind beat, wearing all that white, white mask and all white trunks and everything. I look like Casper the Friendly Ghost. And uh, so I'm in there, whap, 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 getting all, whap, 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 whap. And then after the match, uh, they tell me, now, you need to go thank those guys you wrestled. I said, thank them. They like to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, wrestling etiquette, you go thank them. Yes, sir, I sure will. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, so that's the way I started that way. I worked as a master medic. I was the last guy to work as a master medic, as far as I know, in the southeastern United States. Uh, then I started working bigger shows. And then all of a sudden, I got a very strange phone call. There was a famous, very famous tag team called the Assassins. Now, I know some of your listeners know and remember who the Assassins were. Hmm. They wore the gold mask with the black trim, and they were mean. Whoa, they were mean. You know, they hit you so hard that your mama felt it. You know, that's the way they were. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, he calls me. He goes, Mark, he's got this really deep voice. Mark, yes, sir, Mr. Jody, what's going on? Oh, I need to know. Can you be in Cleveland tonight? Cleveland, Georgia is about a two-hour drive. Yes, sir, Mr. Jody, I can be in Cleveland. You got to show up there? Yeah, I need you to be up here. Okay, it's about 10 o'clock in the morning. He said, I said, well, I can leave here at four. I'll make sure I'm there by six if that's okay, or do you need me there at five? He says, you don't understand. I said, what, sir? He says, Ted Turner's then bought the wrestling company, and I'm the head booker. I need you in Cleveland, Ohio tonight. Sir, I need you in Cleveland, Ohio. Yes, sir. Uh, what do I do? Come to CNN Center, come to the 12th floor, tell the bodyguard who you are. They'll let you in, get your plane ticket, have your gear with you, a couple days of clothing, and get on the plane. I said, yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Jody. Now, I figure I was halfway to the airport before my behind caught up with me. Okay? I was running. Okay? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to see, I'm going to go work with Ric Flair and guys. This is WCW then, right? This is the NWA just before WCW. Take, it changes okay, over okay. to WCW, okay? Yeah. Because yeah. I had a dislocated jaw, so I missed a match. And when I came back, oh my gosh, there were so many different people there. And that's when the transformation had taken place. So I get in there and I walk in the dressing room and... I'm just looking at, and a couple of them come over and shake my hand. I think Ron Simmons did, and Hacksaw Butch Reed, and uh, Sid Vicious looked at me, and he was—he—he's a jokester. He looked at me hmm. and he snarled, and I said, "Oh God, I'm going to wrestle him tonight. I can tell he's going to kill me." And uh, so all this is happening, right? Oh, well. Anyway, I get in there and I wrestle. Kevin Sullivan loves to wrestle me for some reason. He loved to wrestle me, work with me. So. I was working Kevin that night. 
Kevin, good Lord, bless his heart. He taught me so much about the business. He he beat me from a tree to a stump. I'm telling you what, he tore me up. He ringed me out like a cloth. <laughs> he turned me inside out, beat that. He turned me right side back in and beat that. And by the time it was one big bruise when I went back and thanked Kevin Sullivan. <laughs> and Kevin Sullivan, next week, Kevin Sullivan again, Kevin Sullivan again. And I just love the guy. He's so great. Yeah. So anyway, that that's that, but that's how I got to WCW. And all of a sudden now I'm flying on the planes. You know, Ric Flair, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, uh, Terry Funk, Abdullah the Butcher. What year? What year was this roughly? Was uh, this around 2000? It had been about 86. Oh, okay. Okay. Because I end of 86, because I wrestled to that to the, almost the beginning of 91. Okay. But, uh, and uh, so it was. It was amazing, brother. That made me feel like a person. What I didn't understand was by not controlling things, not handling it like a business, but handling it like a party, what I was going to do is lose myself in the mix. And I was going to be more lost at the end of my wrestling career than I was at the beginning of my wrestling career, but I didn't know that. Yeah. I used to watch wrestling when I was, uh, I was born in 85, so it was a little late to see you. But when I was a child, I watched a little WWF. And then when I was probably around 15, I watched WCW for a little bit. Um, that'd be more when you had like Kevin Nash and, uh, I think Sting was one of the wrestlers. I wrestle Sting. Nice, nice. Um, when it comes to wrestling, people often talk about it being fake, mm-hmm. and there is acting involved. There is like I'll give some you things that. are planned, yeah. but there's a real physical aspect to it too. And this comes from both the actual wrestling aspect and putting your body on the line doing stunts. Um, can you dive into that a little bit? Like, sure. What's real? What's fake? Well. First off, if you're really wanting to be a true wrestler, everything is going to hurt. Mm. A punch may not be meant uh, may not be meant to knock you out, but that's almost like a professional courtesy because you know that guy needs to feed his family and work the next night as well. The fights break out in the dressing room. Oh yes. Mm. Do they break out in the bars? Oh, yes. Uh, if they if somebody hit me on the back, lay it in as hard as you can. Bruise me. If you hit me in the face, hey, man, just stay away from the nose, please. It's been broken so many times, it's ridiculous. Just don't break my jaw. But lay it in. Lay it in in a way that I'm going to feel it, that it's going to hurt. But I'm not going to be out, and I'm not going to have a concussion. As far as holds that your that involve your joints bending a certain way or whatever, do it snug. 
let people see the blood stop flowing a little bit or whatever. Uh, the kicks make contact. It's better to hit too kick too hard than not than to miss the guy. Lay it in a little bit. And those boots are hard. They're like concrete on the bottom. Mm. Uh, and, you know, nowadays I see guys, uh, I, when I'm back in the dressing room or whatever, and I see guys and they're, they're like going through a script or whatever. And I'm like, what? Man, all I knew, all I knew was what the finishing hole was probably going to be and how were we, how we were going to open the match. Everything there, man, after that was just freehand. Boom, you call, hmm. you going. Some things you call, sometimes you don't call. I can, I could actually get you in the ring already, do five to 10 minutes with you. And just by explaining two or three things to you, you can watch my body and you will know how to react to save yourself. And so it's, it's, you know, it's like saying it's, if you look at a, you would not look at a stunt person in a, in the motion picture industry and say, oh man, what you do is fake. Those guys come out, man, and they're lucky if they can walk afterwards. Yeah, and some die. Well, I've had broken shoulder, broken noses, multiple, broken jaws, multiple, crushed, crushed sternum or cracked sternum. I've already had both hips replaced, right knee replaced, broken ankle. I don't know how many muscles that have been torn. My, my fingers, um, you, see, you see the little shake there? That's from the multiple concussions. And if you watch this knuckle, you see how it pops back in? That's from hitting somebody. Yeah. yeah. So I hope that helps you understand. Uh, it's the difference between hitting somebody with all your might and hitting them the way you should hit them in the ring. It's so close. That fights break out afterwards in the dressing room. You hit me harder than you were supposed to. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and roids were really big back in yeah. the eighties and nineties. And uh, so you would have there, you would have somebody jacked up, and they didn't realize how hard they were hitting you. Yeah, I remember listening to an interview with uh, Jake the Snake and hearing him tell stories about everyone was doing steroids, everything was a party, and like it was... A, lots of cocaine. Lots of cocaine. A very rock and roll lifestyle. Very rock and roll. Um, and uh, to touch on what you said about stuntmen, uh, stuntmen have died. Wrestlers have died. Mm -hmm. uh, they're... Uh, the Owen, one of the Owens brothers was well, a no, famous Owen one. Hart. Owen Hart, Owen Hart, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, but see, there have been other wrestlers that have had heart attacks in the ring and then mm. they die back in the dressing room. That's happened. Oh, wow. Yeah, there have been like punch, punching and boxing. Uh, when Ray Mancini hit Dooku, Dooku Kim really hard, 
when they got Dooku Kim back to the dressing room, he went to cardiac arrest and all that, and he passed away. And oh, wow. stuff like that's happened in the wrestling business as well. I've I've heard that people have uh, cut themselves intentionally to have the blood aspect. Um, is that something that happens? Yeah. To uh, so like cut yourself with a razor yeah. up here. Yeah. And then you're bleeding, and then it's more for it's for the show. But. That, that kind of thing can happen. I mean, I'm not going to deny it. I've got a few creases, and uh, but if you're against a really well known guy, and and he wants some color, he can c- draw color without you cutting yourself mm. on this on the. The bone right there at the eyebrow, if when you hit it right, the bone will cut the skin. Mm. So if a, somebody really big that. wants to draw color on you, they can draw color without you having to cut yourself. Yeah. One thing I've always wondered while watching wrestling when I was younger is uh, the chairs and the tables. So like it's pretty common for somebody to get slammed through one or even multiple tables and then hit with chairs. Is that painful? Like, is that pretty real? Man, I got hit with a chair. I've been hit with chairs and, uh, it's like the Flintstones when Fred Flintstone gets hit real hard and those stars start going around his head and everything. And yeah, I mean, and sometimes you don't know if a guy's ever hit a person with a chair very much. And I may have the chair turned wrong. And if they, they turn around mm-hmm. real fast and hit you with it, you may not be able to guard yourself. What's the right way to hit somebody with a chair? Like, I don't even know because they're metal chairs. It's the foldable, collapsible chairs that people are usually using. Yeah. What you want to be able to do is the flat seat. You want to help you. And it's going to hurt the guy. It can be yeah. a, a good concussion, but you won't kill him. And that's to the flat part of the chair. You have to be careful because the way it folds up, you can hit him with the top edge of the back of the chair and it could yeah. crack the crane. It could, you know, br- cause a crack in the cranium. I mean, br- it could bust your skull. However, the flat part, the seat. And so you have to be, you have to know how to do it. And it is going to hurt. And it's dangerous. Hmm. And anybody who cares about the business, they're not going to say, tap me with it. They're going to say, go ahead, lay it in, and I'll deal with it. Are there people that uh, go into wrestling and aren't really cut out for the pain that it entails and Gosh. they ask you to go lighter and and they just don't pan out they, if they if they're if they are if they're not ready for the pain they won't make it through training mm. that's just basically it is the best thing to do is weed them out as soon as possible don't waste your time with them if they can't but say if they can't fall on their back and that is a way to save yourself to fall on your back. If you cannot fall on your back and you want to roll back or whatever, if you can't take the pain, you're going to be on drugs anyway. So we're not going to put you through unless you work in a match. No way. Yeah. Because that hurts the business. So that pain aspect, that would mean 
uh, painkillers and alcohol are probably pretty common among wrestlers, right? Cocaine is a big one. Uh, uh, yeah, Percocet, Percodan, Demerol, Oxys. Some people could get their hands on Dilaudid. Uh, and, you know, a lot of alcohol. And unfortunately, when you mix all those together, that's when I know several wrestlers that have been found dead in their apartments. That's what happens. They go yeah. into full cardiac arrest. Yeah, and uh, there's been incidents where wrestlers have snapped and done something. I, I can't remember the wrestler's name. Benoit? Yeah, Chris Moore Killed his family? Yeah, yeah. There's That that case was pretty famous. Um, so yeah, obviously all those mixtures of drugs aren't aren't good for your brain as well. Exactly. So. And, you know, getting hit with the chairs and all this kind of stuff, the concussions, uh, all concussions, it doesn't, all your concussions do not have to be major concussions before you end up uh, with CTE. Of course, they, they don't find that until they slice your brain open when you're dead. Yeah. But uh, I've got signs of it. The trembles you saw a while ago were signs of it. Short-term memory loss are signs of it. Headaches are signs of it. And you got to realize when your head's taking all those blows, your neck is absorbing a lot also. I've got bone spurs on my neck going on down uh, through my uh, cervical and thoracic region of my back. I've got bone spurs. Mm. With that, do you do you feel like your personality is changing? So you have some CTE signs. Do you feel like your personality is changing? Because the reason I ask is the NFL is known for having domestic violence cases yeah. and CTE is often blamed. And I was actually just having a conversation with a few friends about this the other day. I think there is more of a culture that is accepting of it in the football and that's used as an excuse more than it is the driving factor. But I don't really know. Well, um, you, there are days that your fuse is definitely shorter. Mm. Okay. It doesn't mean you go off and you slap somebody or, you know, do anything physical. But with that short-term memory loss, sometimes something can be so aggravating and then as you're just letting it out, your thoughts are so scrambled. Mm. And it, it, it frustrates you. Yeah. So there, there are things like that. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think that's why writing this book was such a miracle to me. Number one, I, I never was really that big a reader. I've read more, but now with the headaches, I have to read less. To write a book? Yeah, I really do believe it was a miracle. Being able to filter all these past emotions, feelings that I've had, and different things that's gone on. I cried the entire time I wrote this book. I cried. 
And, but yet, you know, and, and then being able to sit down like with you, the others I've done it with, uh, being able to talk about it. And instead of it bothering me, and I got to say, this is a God thing, is that it has created me the opportunity and my brain seems to be healthier by helping people understand that, yes, there is a chance that you can find peace in your life. I never really understood the importance of peace in a person's life. But without peace, there's discord. Without, without peace, there's continual trauma. You know, without peace is depression. And to the listeners as well, those of you suffering from depression, you know, I've been on drugs for depression. I've done a lot of things because of depression. And sometimes depression is, in fact, it's not a psychological thing. It is actually physical because, you know, different people's minds are wired differently. It could be because of the way the brain's wired. So I in no way tell a person, oh, you can, you can get off those medications or whatever. I don't, I don't do that. That's for the doctor. Okay. Because yeah. I do believe God uses doctors. But I do, uh, I do believe peace is so important. Peace will draw people to you. Peace, find a person having peace, everybody will want that kind of person in their life because it makes their life better. So for me, this book, I think it's actually helped me with my CTE. Some of my hmm, symptoms. I can see that. Yeah, I, I think writing writing is a powerful powerful medium and being able to speak and write being able to articulate your thoughts and and put them down in an organized way is very powerful and it it's therapeutic too writing especially yeah like i said i cried i cried yeah. through the entire thing then i cried when the first person read it and said my gosh i've never seen a person bear their soul and in ink the way you did, Mark. My gosh, you went raw. You went totally raw. Yeah. But if I if I don't if I don't be myself, if I don't be really truthful, then I can't expect anybody to trust me. And I yeah. want and I you know I want the listeners to know that we care about them. I know you do, Artie. You care about them. You're 
when we were talking earlier today, you said such a simple statement, and yet it's so powerful. You said, you know, I, I'm just trying to change the world and make it a better place. To me, that's a hero. That sounds to me like when I used to work with special forces. I used to go up to them and, in fact, SEAL Team 6 that killed bin Laden, other SEAL teams, so forth. And I used to say, I would tell them, it is such an honor to be working with you on different projects because you're my hero. Now, their answer, every one of them was the same answer. And that is, uh, it's Mark, I'm not a hero. I'm just a man doing his job. I think you have, uh, from what I see in you already, you have that kind of humility. I hope. I don't consider myself a hero. At I all. hope. I, people see that humility in me because I'm definitely not trying to be something that I'm not. But you're you're on you're you're providing this outlet for people so that they can find peace in their lives. They 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 can get answers maybe to questions they've had for a long time that they can work things out in their lives and. You give people like me a chance to encourage them with our own story. And I hope the listeners understand that on both our parts, there's love here. There's not judgment. There's love. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't believe I'm a hero. I believe I'm just somebody who's very curious and likes listening to other people's learning from other people. I believe that we can, there's something everybody has. Everybody has something that they can teach the world. I believe everybody has something that you can learn from them with. And, uh, I think that with more perspective and understanding, the more perspective we gain from others and the more understanding we have of others, the better world that we can create. You know, so many, so many conflicts can be narrowed down to misunderstandings and lack of communication, lack of willingness or ability to understand each other. I really do think that the more we expose ourselves to other views, other people who have different perspectives, the more we can learn and grow and create a better world. And I think we need a better world. You know, uh, Artie, when I was coming up with a title, uh, I, someone on a podcast asked me the other day, how did you, uh, it was a, a listener that, and they were right. They were sending in questions and the host, you know, would answer, ask me the question. And one of the questions was, how did you come up with a title? wrestling with demons well you know i don't and i I like the flintstones okay i can't help it that was my favorite uh cartoon as a kid okay yeah but i remember when fred used to was in that point of making a good or a bad decision he'd have an angel over here and a little demon over here on on both each shoulder you know and they would be arguing that was his inner thoughts uh 
my demons. And I classify demons as things that just like to work good, uh, work evil in a person's life. For me, my, one of my demons was having a very, very low self-esteem of figuring I just don't matter and I don't count. Now, I still don't think I'm all that, but I, I do know that God doesn't make junk, so I'm out of the junk pile now. <laughs> okay? Uh, the other one was fear. The fear that I'd never amount to anything. And I'm not the, uh, I would not say any, to anybody that they should pattern their life after mine. But I think with God's help, I've come out a winner. Not because of me. Another inner demon was anger. Another one was fear, not being accepted. Those were mine. But in, in, and now we look, you know, into society and we're, you, when, you, when you're talking about the world and different people and different views, you know, my heart breaks in uh, for cities like Chicago when there are tens of uh, carjackings a day. Different cities across America, people are getting pulled out of their vehicle and beaten on the street and left for dead. And I look at it and I go, why are people doing this? Do they just get joy out of this? I don't think they do, Artie. Yeah. One thing I'm, I'm old and ugly. And one thing I think I'm learning in my oldness and my ugliness is that when people are doing bad things to other people, generally it's because the person that's doing it has a lot of baggage on the inside. A lot of unprocessed baggage. Uh, I think our society, people are afraid. You know, for a person that doesn't have a foundation or a belief in their life, then what what teaches them value? What teaches them that they've made something of, of themselves? Commercials. If you wear this and eat this and drink this and you do this this way, man, you got it going on. You're a success. Yeah. That's sad. When people are seeing crimes committed, oh, I don't want to get involved. Uh-uh. I don't want to get involved in that. No way, man. Where's the love? I think people have been burnt so bad with love that our society in a lot of ways has a false, they carry around a false meaning of what love is. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's what I see. And those are demons. And of course I wrestled and why are people continually doing these bad things to each other? I think there's a big wrestling match going on. So that's how I came up came up with it. Okay. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, 
One of the things, and, and I've talked about this on other episodes that I like, is you you define demons, or you didn't clearly define it, but you explained what demons were, and it's something internal. It's not an external force necessarily guiding you to do bad things. I think and, it, can be, I can be, it can be either, okay? Yeah. But there's a... I've said this quote before. I'll say it again. Um, there's a book called the, I'm a huge reader. Yeah. And there's a book called the Gulag Archipelago where, uh, this, he was a communist and he was on the front lines in, uh, World War II, I believe. Uh, and he wrote some disparaging letters about Stalin and it got found out and he got put in, uh, a Gulag. Yeah. And he was he was a good communist, and he's like going through trying to figure out what happened. And he actually wrote this book. It's pretty miraculous. He he wrote it and had it like destroyed by the guards and stuff like that during his time in uh, prison. And he ended up eventually writing it. And one of these, one of the quotes that just stood out to me, it seems so powerful, is he said this. He said. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But alas, the, the line dividing good and evil strikes through the heart of every human being. And who wants to tear out a piece of his own heart? And I've always loved that quote since I read it. And I feel like what you were explaining touches on that concept. Like you're, we're all capable of doing bad things. We're all capable of doing the worst. Like when we see somebody committing some evil deed and we say, I could never do that. The reality is in a different situation, you probably could. Yeah. Because that's another human being doing that thing. And we're all human beings. We're all capable of doing horrible things. Yeah, I, I that, that's 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 powerful what you just said. Very powerful. And where I what I've been able to find out in my own life, let me say it that way, okay? Because I'm not trying to berate anybody, and I hope I'm not coming across that way. Uh, yeah, no. For me, I learned for myself that I needed a foundation in my life. A foundation, something that was bigger than me. And that sounds simple, like somebody could be saying, oh, you're just desperate, you're looking for this and that. No, I tell you what, I... If I look at religion or other things, I look at, number one, is it logical? Number two, I want some proof. And we got that proof in our home. I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, you don't know this, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you one fact, and then I'm going to tell you the, what I, the thing that actually happened. I've already been told twice that I'd be in a wheelchair by a certain age. I'm walking. 
and I'm starting to jog again after all my replacements. But my son was dying. My son was two years old. All the platelet, he had, he was starting to turn blue. We lived in Marshall, Texas, about a hundred miles outside of Dallas. He was taken by ambulance. They were pumping blood in him, keep him alive. My wife called me. She was in the ambulance. And he, they took him to Children's Hospital, which is part of Parkland, where JFK went, okay, after he was shot. They told us they didn't know what happened, but all the platelets had gone and dissolved from his blood. Hmm. They said if he scratches himself, he'll die before he can get to the hospital. And they said, so we cannot tell you how long he's got. Two-year-old. I'll tell you what, yeah, I, I was mad at God. I went outside, got me a, uh, an axe, and I, chopped, I was chopping on a tree yelling, damn it, every time I'd hear it. I think you'd probably do that too, wouldn't you, or something. Something. Yeah. Uh, for over four months, going into almost month five, he was getting tested. No change, no change. There was no medicine, no nothing. In the fifth month, they call us. Brendan and I start tearing up because they don't have medicine. So we know that they're going to tell us probably how much time he's got left. We'd, God, we don't want to pick up that phone, Artie. But we did. The doctor said, Mr. Miss Smith, I don't know how to tell you. I'm thinking, geez, it's a disease. We did a test on his blood. The test we did the other day, we ran it through all the different tests. And something's happened. Yes, sir. Millions of platelets suddenly appeared in his blood. He said, what? Platelets appeared in his blood. His blood has the correct, he's, he's got, he's well within the healthy range of platelets in his blood. Well, what happened? Mr. Miss Smith, this is a miracle. I've never seen it. <laughs> Thank you, doctor. And we went and hugged our son, Austin. Uh, I say that because, number one, I really saw it. I saw it happen. So I'm not, I'm not carrying a belief on what somebody else said, if that makes sense. I said it has to be logical. And I had to see it. I saw the miracle. Now, with that, there was no chance of the test just being wrong the first time or anything like that? No, they had run over a dozen tests. Mm, okay. Uh, you know, that, uh, those kind of things ran through my head, too. Yeah. No. But no, he was getting tested. Uh, every week, 
So over four months, he probably had mm. anywhere from 12 to 16 tests, blood tests. Okay. Yeah. But we saw it. And then I've had dear friends that were much older than I that have passed away. And one of them described heaven as they were seeing it. And they passed away. I heard that. Those are kind of hard for me to argue with. You know what I'm saying? Already? Yeah. So, um, um, you know, if, if somebody's out there and they're like on the fence, maybe that story will help them one way or other. I'm not trying to bobble bash anybody. Those are just real things that happen to us. Okay. So I, I want to yeah. make that clear with the listeners that I'm not trying to, uh, spiritually attack you or anything like that. I'm not trying to, this is just pure personal testimony. Okay. Yeah. I personally, I used to be, I used to consider myself an atheist at one point and I'm not, I don't consider myself very religious or anything. Um, but I, I will never call myself an atheist again. That's for sure. I, it just, it seems like a position of arrogance, uh, you know, and, and I have, I have, I know a few people who are still a- atheist and every once in a while I hear an argument like, well, I don't believe there's some guy in the clouds making things happen. And I'm like, yeah, but that's like a, it's like a five-year-old's conception of what God is, yeah. you know, that right. I think people I don't know if I'd be able to explain what I think God is, but I think uh, I think it's much more complex than some guy in the clouds oh, controlling yeah. things. You know, I've had people know? ask me, Artie, that well, if God, if there's a God, why was there a baby born and a and thrown in a dumpster? Okay, that's actually, yeah. believe it or not, there's a pretty easy answer to that. Uh. The fact is, is from what we can see over time, God has like created uh, laws of nature. Let me say it that way: laws of nature. Mm. So, if a if it's that time of a month for a female, and you know she and a man uh, have relations, then there can be offspring. Well. If that's done within marriage, then there's a deep commitment there. Many times, it's like sexual relationships are just either for the kicks or for the convenience, if that makes any sense. And so those laws of nature have been created. But if they're not followed in a certain way, you may have a child that's born and people look at it and go, uh-uh, I'm not having this thing. No. So they leave it in the bathroom or they throw the baby in the dumpster or whatever. But there seems to be laws of nature, things that we know will happen if certain things are done. 
And one of my professors called them laws of nature. And I've always thought that was a pretty, pretty good insight and a good use of words. So that's, yeah. that's how I would get around something like that. When it, when it comes to the miracle of your child being cured miraculously, yeah. you were not in a appreciative mood of God. Like you were not happy with him at, at the time. Let me tell you, at this point, I was actually a youth director at a church. Mm. And it was such a conflict within yeah. my own heart because I know God loves, and I was talking about God's love to these kids, but yet within my within my heart, there was this part that said, "This is Austin, and God wants you doing something, and it tears you because. You know, there's a, there's almost like a conflict of interest there. I didn't feel at that point, I didn't feel like I could be as good as I could be to those kids because I was harboring something else in my heart. Hmm. Now, that I think is something that people can identify with. And I also think it's something that most people that have been in ministry, they probably wouldn't admit it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I told you I was going to be yeah. raw with you, right? And I, and I yeah. am being straight down the line. And I hope the listeners can feel that as well. Um, One thing I want to ask about spirituality. I think that when people are going through their lives, maybe they're religious at some point, maybe they're not. But people make decisions that don't align with their own morality, their own sense of values. Um, people, it's commonly referred to as going off your path, you know, going off the path. Um, can you go too far off your path? Or or what would you say to somebody who, I, I think that people do bad things and I've done bad things in my oh, life. Sure. I, I've yeah, done many things yeah, that I, right. I regret, but like people do something bad and then they feel themselves like irredeemable. And then they start to use their past behavior as justification. Why there's no reason to correct right. their course in life. Well, my, my answer to that, and I can say through my own life, um, uh, with me going through all the surgeries and everything, with me being told I was not going to walk again, so on multiple occasions, by being so down on myself, figuring that I was not good for anybody. I had a wife and children, and I got my, my pain pills, and I laid them on the bed. And my mind was twisted because of so much disappointment. I was not going to be the father that I thought I should be because I got a broken down body. Didn't feel like I was going to be any good for my wife because I'm a broken down fella. I just, I was no good. But what, when I had the pills in my hand, what made me drop them 
was I thought about, Mark, it's not about all about you. It's also about the people that love you. And with Austin's situation and the fact you're not in a wheelchair yet, Mark, maybe you just got things scrambled a little bit. So me and him had a conversation, me and the man upstairs. We had a conversation. What I realized was this. He doesn't run from us. Sometimes we get, we can get frustrated, twisted. And we, and I love what you said about this path, we walk off the path. He's still on the path. Okay? But, so to, to those people that may feel that way, let me ask you. If both your parents are living or if one has passed away, and you had an opportunity, if, if, if uh, they love you and they ha- if they had an opportunity to get on a plane right now and come see you, would they do it? I'm pretty sure they would. Yeah. So can you ever go too far? God loves you like you're his child. Your parents love you. Think about that love, that kind of love. If you've got kids, think about the kind of love you got for your kids. You know, uh, And just don't, I would say this to anybody, including myself, and that is just don't let pride, you know, don't let pride uh, get in the way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, you touched on something that uh, I think is really important, and it's a touchy subject, suicide. I think you you hit something really important, and that's uh, and it. I understand depression. I understand why people would feel the urge to commit suicide. I I think it's very understandable. Yeah. The world can suck at times, and and pain is hard to deal with. And sometimes you feel like there is nothing to look forward to except more pain. But it might not be fair. But the reality is that. There are people, I think there are few, if any, people that there's nobody in the world that cares about them. And if you decide to take your life, you're hurting people. You're not ending, you you might be ending your physical pain, but you are creating so much pain with that decision that if you care about the people around you, it might not be fair. It might not be fair to have to endure more pain because of the people around you matter. But that is what it is. It's it's reality that if you if you make that decision to end your life, you're destroying other lives alongside yours. So I think that's important that you touch on that. Yeah. And this is one thing I would encourage to the listeners. And that is, 
if you're having those kind of feelings, first off, go to a doctor because it could be uh, something physical that is not allowing you to filter everything well all that's going on uh there's been a lot of people that in 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 years past that have been heavily criticized for their mental abilities when and they were called crazy and everything else when really there was something physically wrong that was altering their thought process. So if, you, if you're talking to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, whatever, if they don't want you to get a physical beforehand, don't talk to them. Hmm. Get checked out physically. So that you know what's if 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 something's more physical or or emotional, and then, uh, and I say this in the book. Whatever those things are that are driving you toward this decision, and I, again, I'm going to just say I call them the uglies, the demons. Those are just things that just rip tear you apart on the inside. Okay. What I would ask you to do is, first off, confront them. Admit they're there. Yeah. It's hard to fight an enemy if you turn your back and don't acknowledge that the enemy is present. Acknowledge something's wrong. It's okay. You'll still be loved. Say, okay, it's there. Who do I trust to help give me some direction? And when you do that, you're going to see the love of that individual. And all of a sudden, you know, ending it all is not going to look like such a great alternative. Yeah. So I love what you said. You you said that there's probably hardly anybody in the world that's not loved by somebody. Look at the people in your life. Draw from them. Draw the love from them. Talk to somebody you trust. If these kind of thoughts come come about quite often, get a physical makeup on yourself. Yeah. So, and uh, guilt, different things like that. They can be overcome. They can be overcome with love. I hope I explained that well. Yeah. Yeah, you did. Um, I forgot to ask you about something in your childhood. Yeah. You were in the Deep South and you had the KKK and stuff like that there. You had, you experienced... Oh, it was in all different counties. Yeah. Yeah, they had... Yeah, different counties. So you were around true racism when you were younger. Yeah. How did that shape your life? Uh, I 
even though I could hug anybody's neck, it there was something about it that nagged you, nagged me. It was like a, I guess because I didn't buy into it, but yet you, you hear that kind of stuff so much and you see it on TV, you know. We lived on the south side of Atlanta and you would see stuff on the north side of Atlanta going on. And, you know, it was just all around in a lot of communities. Yeah. I think as hard as you tried to say that there's not a difference between people. Being around that kind of stuff still puts a little nugget of doubt that, yeah, there is. There is something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And getting into ministry, it tore down the wall some. But then when we adopted Jefferson, and I hugged him, or before the adoption, I hugged him when we adopted him. But I hugged him. I understood that he was my boy. And you know what? So what? The hair's different. So what? Yeah. I mean, come on. I look at when we go out and eat or something to that effect, and he calls me dad, and this older person looks kind of confused or kind of stares. That's the person I feel sorry for. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, I mean, it, you, you look at the things that's happened to me and to me and Brenda, and it's just crazy. Brenda says that years and years ago, I said, oh, we're going to be a foster foster family one day. I don't ever remember saying that. She swears I did. I think she's playing games with my CTE personally, but anyway. <laughs> but but I but I, I don't remember it. And then we're in this church, and all of a sudden these kids come in we've never seen before. They're foster kids. We hear about their their refrigerators being locked. So they could only go to the refrigerator certain hours of the day or a small segment of the day. If the foster family went to McDonald's, they wouldn't pay for the kids' food like a normal family. You pay for the kids' food. They would make the kid take it out of their allowance. Mm. And I'm thinking, oh, God, this is, this, this is not right. Brent, Brent and I looked at each other and said, okay, we got to do something about this. So, you know, we've had almost 20 foster children. We've adopted five. We did not, and I'll, I'll say this, we did not go in this to shop for, to shop for kids. No. In fact, every, every kid we adopted, we were telling them we wanted a break. Mark, Brenda, there's a sibling group. The mother died of a brain aneurysm. We know y'all can help them. Would you would you and, and and a lot of times it was because of your faith they can they need your help. We get them. Usually, 
if a kid is in your home for about a year, if you don't adopt them, they ship them somewhere else. After three years, they go, they look at us and they say, are y'all about ready to adopt? Three years. I think we just about are. We need a few more conversations. Okay, Mark, take your time. I said, I appreciate that. Because I did tell them when it comes to our family, no government uh, entity is going to tell us who we can and cannot have as family. That's our decision. It's not theirs. DCS looked at us and said, we understand. So that's Department of Child Services, okay? DCS. But, um, yeah. So you look at all this that happened, and then two more brothers. Mother was caught with drugs in a, in a raid that 30 to 40 people went to jail. She would not do anything the court asked to get the kids back. Small kids. They showed up on our doorstep with flip with a pair of flip-flops they were wearing that were two to three sizes too big, one T-shirt, and the pair of shorts they were wearing. That's all they had. They were adopted April of this year, of mm. last year, 23. Yeah. You look at this stuff that's happening, you look at how the race issues, being a foster parent, it any blocks we had in our lives, they're gone. Somebody Somebody had a divine plan that put all this stuff into action. There's no way I no way I could have done it. So yeah, I gotta think there's somebody big up there, man, because I never when 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 I was that young kid or a or a professional wrestler, I never thought I'd have eight kids, you know, uh four grandchildren, uh, son-in-laws that rather stay, be over here with us than be with their own families. You know, I would never thought I'd become Pop Pop and Pops. I mean, people around town call me Pops. <laughs> and the privilege to be on here with you and speak to so many people to let them know you are loved. You are truly loved. Artie loves you. I love you. You go, I don't understand this love. How can how can somebody just love me? Boom. Just out of the blue. How can somebody love me? Why? Because we got peace in our hearts. And talk to somebody. If you never have, hey. Talk to a pastor. Some of them's pretty good. Some can be goofy, but some are pretty good. Or if you want to say, hey, I don't want that kind of pressure, go to Amazon and get the book, Wrestling with Demons by Mark and Brenda Smith. Because you might be able to relate to something that we've been through. And to the listeners, it's important for all of you to know whatever you're going through, you're not alone. You're not alone. Alone. <laughs> Yeah. 
And so I hope the book shows you love. And Artie, I just, I love you to death, man. I think you're a cool guy. Now, you're graduated in 85, so you'd have to be my little brother. All right. I was born in 85. Oh, you were born oh, in 85. You graduated yeah, in 85. born in 85. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gotcha. graduating high school in 85. So either you could have been my really young son or uh, my younger brother. Either way, I'll take you. Okay. You got me now. <laughs> all right. You know, I love that you, uh, you said that you love everybody and I love everybody. It really is true. I know I have listeners that I've never met, but I love that they're taking the time. Like I love them for taking the time, giving me some of their attention. Attention is one of the most valuable commodities there is right now. Yeah. And for somebody to take the time to listen to my podcast, I do two hour episodes. Not easy for people to get through all the time. I really do appreciate people taking their time. I love them for that. And I don't think it's a perfect answer, but you know, one of those philosophical questions is what is the meaning of life? And the best answer I can come up with for that question is love. Love is the meaning of life. And it's not romantic love necessarily. It's just love to to have love for others and to experience love. It could be a friendship. It could be a stranger that shows you love somehow. Uh, I really do believe that love is the meaning of life. That's what we're here to experience. And I want one amen today, and it's probably going to be from what I'm about to tell you. And you you can steal it from me and use it, okay? Yeah. Without love, a person exists. With love, they live. Hmm. I can say amen to that. <laughs> but yeah, and uh, and so, you know, we, I think what we're talking about right now, listeners, you're really are, you really are, you've got family right here. When yeah. when you're when you're giving Artie and and me today time, that's the one thing you never get back. It's the most valuable thing you have. So let's just look at ourselves and the listeners as everybody and everyone as family. And even though you may be in the same family, your own your each person is their own individual being, and family can learn from one another. So let's just let's look at ourselves as a big family that learns together. Yeah. Well, Mark, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. Um, before we wrap up, do you want to give listeners a way to find you if they uh, tell more about your book, if you want, and then anything else you feel like sharing? Sure. Wrestling with Demons uh, by Mark and Brenda Smith. It's on Amazon. Uh, if you know someone who's hurting, please get it for them or for yourself. You will not you, you will not feel alone if you read it. Also, uh, I'm going to give Artie and well, he's already got it. He's got my email address, my personal email address. If any of you need to speak to me or you want to talk to Artie, I know Artie would talk with you. 
He'd try to provide some love and comfort. That's what I would do as well. Uh, but he's got my permission to give you my personal email. Facebook, wrestlingwithdemons.smith. That's it. But listeners, thank you very much. It really is. It really does mean a lot because time is something that once it's gone, it's gone. It's an honor. It's a privilege. It's really a blessing to me that you were willing to spend some time with us today with me. And I hope it hasn't been a waste. You are loved. And my individual prayer for all of you is that if things are going in your lo- going on in your life, no matter what they are, I hope that you have peace, you have love, and you have understanding. And when you have that, you can live and not just exist. Thank you, Artie. Mark, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If our conversations resonate with you, consider leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. It goes a long way in helping the show grow and reach new listeners. You can also like and subscribe on YouTube. And I love to hear from listeners, so please find me on X or Twitter at RDTM Podcast. That's A-R-T-I-E-T-M-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And Instagram at Thoughtfully Mindless. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to FractalZoo.net where I have unique fractal-inspired clothing. Each purchase goes directly toward helping the show grow. I also have an Amazon affiliate link, which I'll put in my link tree and add to the show notes. I thank you for taking the time to listen today. It means a lot to me. That's it for this episode. Until next time, stay thoughtfully mindless.